0: One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Feminist. Hello, and welcome back Mormon. to another episode of the Feminist Housewives. Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series for, uh, where we take the entire year breaking down and trying to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And it's an issue that a lot of people say that is not relevant to our day and age, but I would like to show in the series that it is, that this practice has shaped our doctrine, it has shaped our culture, it has shaped our thinking, and it continues to do so. So I hope you'll stay with us the entire series So you can learn and understand. And I'd also encourage you to not just take my word for it. I'd encourage you to study. I've included books and uh, some documents that I have used to research this. But I'd also encourage anyone who is in Salt Lake City to go down to the Church History Library, request uh, some microfilm reviewing of some of these documents. You can do that. Just go right in the doors and go to the right and uh, you can view some of these documents yourself. Uh, I think it's really important, especially in the LDS culture, where sources become a huge issue of importance, where a lot of people think that if it's scandalous towards the church, it's made up. It's really important that you look at these primary primary sources yourself, if at all possible. And if not, buy the books. See historians that have handled these documents um, firsthand. Uh, Todd Compton is one of them. Brian Hales. Uh, Anyone from The Persistence of Polygamy, Don Bradley, um, Craig Foster, Devery Anderson, Bergera, there's just all kinds of, There's there are so many good books out there, so I'd encourage you to do that. And if this is your first time tuning in, I would point you back to episode one in this series of A Year of Polygamy. Start with Fanny Alger. This series is meant to go in chronological order as much as possible. So let's get to it. Uh Last week we talked about blood atonement. It was a little bit of a salacious topic, but uh, I want to give it some more context this time and talk about the early Utah period. We've kind of, you know, um briefly gone over the Saints coming West and plural marriage there. I would encourage anyone, if you have trail journals in your family of people that have come across and they've mentioned plural marriage, I would love for you to send me those references. I've had a lot of great people contact me and uh, I that. And I also want to just thank everyone who donated to the podcast. We did a fun drive last week and that was super, super helpful. All of these funds for the podcast, all the hosting comes out of my pocket alone. And it takes an incredible amount of time. And so it really meant a lot to my family to have, um, have some people donate some money to show that uh, this the series is meaningful, and it meant a lot to me, most especially that people sent me notes of encouragement. That makes me realize that so many people find this valuable, so I will continue to do this. Um, okay, let's get into the Utah period. So, we have the Saints traveling west, and now, you know, I talked about earlier that they had all these different locations that they were thinking of. Uh, by now, by the time, you know, they leave in 46, they get there in 47, Um, all the saints start filtering in. And there was a proposed state called Deseret. And we use that word a lot in Mormonism, Deseret. And it included Utah and Nevada, along with south the southeastern corner of Idaho. And also what they wanted it to be was the southwest corner of Wyoming and a large part of southeastern Oregon and a bit of southern California. By 1857, so just 10 years after they arrived, Thirty-five thousand saints would live in the Great Basin. Thirty-five thousand in just ten years, and by 1869, almost twenty years later, seventy-five thousand saints lived here. And by 1877, when Brigham Young would die, there were around 125,000 saints. And we've heard that you know the revelation that the desert would blossom like a rose or bloom like a rose. And this is, uh, I think, what we're talking about. You know, saints are gathering. They're coming from, you know, Europe and they're coming from the east. And they're kind of spreading out in this proposed state of Deseret. One plural wife remarked that in 1847, her first impression of the valley was that it looked, quote, barren with sagebrush and sunflowers, a few small streams of water running through it and some squalid Indian wigwams scattered about, end quote. So you can imagine that. I really like, I live out in Tooele County and, uh, I love going out in the West Desert and just kind of like, Peering on the mountain and imagining what it would have been like for the Saints to be here and to see this valley sort of empty. It's its kind of an interesting feeling, and I think her description is apt. When the Saints first came in 1847, they went to work sawing logs that some men brought down from the canyon to build houses. So Brigham would organize a few colonies um, at the very beginning. So you have to remember, in the first few years, it was really rugged. So picture this barren Utah land, And not a lot of trees, except for from the canyons. And, you know, they had survived a long, probably overly complicated journey here. And now they have to build these rugged dwellings to get established. And they also have to deal with a lot of unfriendly Indians. There were the Utes and the Paiutes here. And the Utes were not considered to be a friendly bunch. At least at first. Um. So, these saints... Start these little colonies. They saw logs, bring them down from the mountain, build these rugged houses. Most would live in their wagons until the winter. And they would mostly cook outdoors. And it was incredibly difficult. So imagine making this arduous journey and you stop in the middle of the desert and say, okay, this is where we're going to live. Now live out of your, you know, your wagon for some months till we get it settled. Oh, and by the way, be careful because there's wild animals and Indians everywhere. This is what it was like. Early on, a lot of them arranged forts and there was an early utah fort in salt lake city and if i think if you if i'm remembering correctly you can go to the church history library and look at like a diagram of what this looked like but the forts were common they, they were like rugged squares of cabins sometimes with fences around them they were not what we consider forts to be i mean later on as the years would go the saints would be, be better like you have co fort down in central utah that's actually resembles more of a fort but at the very beginning, it was just like a block of houses with a fence so people could protect themselves as best they could. It was a really difficult, really um impoverished sort of living. In 1848, Brigham Young would parcel out land plots for the saints living there. So Brigham gets his bearings. He starts, you know, mapping out the town. Historians claim that Brigham Young would show a bias for polygamous families. He would give family heads... um the ability to draw a lot for each of their wives. So if you were a polygamous family, you not only just drew one lot, but you got to draw one lot for each of your wives, which was a huge benefit. And widows and divorced women who were all heads of families also got to participate in drawing lots, which is, I guess, go feminism. But unmarried men couldn't draw at all. So Brigham was sending a clear message, if you're not married, you don't get to have this property. But if you are... This is the law. This is the principle. Get in line. Follow us. According to church historian Richard Van Wagner, the privilege of plural marriage in Utah was extended to a much broader segment of the Mormon community than it, than at Nauvoo. So Nauvoo was like the small secret of elite, but it starts to expand. Phineas Cook was a Mormon millwright, and he left an interesting account of Brigham Young's invitation to take a second wife. So he says that he was preparing, Phineas Cook says he was preparing to move to San Pete Valley to establish a mill that Brigham Young told him to establish. Uh, Phineas Cook told Brigham Young that his wife was, quote, wife was nearly tired out and we wanted to get away as soon as we could. He said that he had the advantage of me for when we got when his women got tired when Brigham's women got tired, he could take them home and change them for the fresh ones end quote so that kind of shows you how Brigham viewed his wives he if his wives got tired, he could swap them out for someone who had more energy later that evening when uh, Phineas Cook and Brigham Young were having a private discussion, Young reportedly told Cook that quote. He wanted me to get all the wives I wanted, and it was his counsel that I should do so, end quote. And you can find that in Mormon Polygamy, page 83. According to B. Carmen Hardy and Lowell C. Bennion, who are sch- scholars on this subject, they estimate that about 20 to 30 percent of Mormons were living in polygamous families between 1850 and 1890. 20 to 30 percent. I've I've heard some numbers thrown out, you know, by people who speculate like, oh no, it was only 2%. It was about 20 to 30%. And it varied from town to town. So like if you were in Orderville, Orderville was one of the places, there was a few towns where they tried to establish the law of consecration. And of course it didn't last. But Orderville was one of those, two thirds of those families would be polygamous. And then maybe like 5% of Mormons living in South Weber would be polygamous. And if you were an immigrant, A poor immigrant man, there were, you were a lot less likely to receive plural wives than, say, a white New England man. Um, it was absolutely more prevalent amongst Mormon leaders. It was considered a perk. It was, as you moved your way up the hierarchy, the more wives you would, you would get. Seven consecutive LDS church presidents serving from 1830 to 1945 had plural wives. So, seven church presidents in a row, commencing with Joseph Smith Jr. in Nauvoo, which we've talked about, and concluding with Heber J. Grant. I bet some of you didn't know that Heber J. Grant was the last uh, president to have plural wives. So we like to think of Wilford Woodruff with the with the manifesto, but it was actually Heber J. Grant. And you can find all that information in the Persistence of Polygamy, Volume 2, on page six, I believe. Um. Another great book is The Polygamous Wife's Writing Club that just came out. Um, and she claims that about 12% of polygamous husbands married their wives' sisters. And this is important because there was some research to show, and contemporaneous observers also thought that if a man married a pair of sisters, these unions were among the happiest. And, quote, the tent was more quiet that way, meaning there was less disputes. So it was said that if you married sisters, you would have a more harmonious home than, say, if you married two strangers. Um, and, you know, polygamy, <laughs> polygamy, if you were an immigrant woman, you were very likely to get snapped up and married. But if you're an immigrant man coming from, like, Denmark or something— You might have more plural wives, but we're talking maybe two or maybe three. But as you move your way up the hierarchy, you have Heber Kimball who had over 40 and Brigham Young who had over 50. Um, it just, it was seen as a position of power. And as we talk about later sex, uh, later on today, like the FLDS, it's considered a station of power to have the more women you accrue, sort of the more authority and power and, and clout you have in the community. The 1850s would be a really significant time for plural marriage in Utah. And I would argue the 1850s in general is one of the most fascinating, violent, disturbing times in Mormon history. Um And that's saying a lot because Nauvoo and Missouri are fas- fascinating. But 1850s was a fanatical time. That's when we have the Mountain Meadows Massacre. That's when we have all these Journal of Discourses. And we really have... A lot of these doctrines being worked out. Immigrants were flooding into the territory and would give these ample bodies to the practice. And I talked about immigrant women. According to Newell, Bringhurst, and Craig Foster, um, almost half of the immigrant women would become plural wives. That's a lot considering 20 to per 30% were polygamous and half of the immigrant women got snatched up. And, you know, I have stories in my own family of like a 16 year old immigrant worker working in someone's home and being snatched up as a plural wife. This was very common. During the 20 years after 1860, the percentage of families living in plural marriage would decline. So from 1860, from 1850 to 1860, it skyrockets, right? The percentage of plural families, families goes up. But from 1860, the percentage of families goes down. However, the number of people actually involved in the practice increases. So even though the percentage of the saints goes down, the amount of people in it actually goes up. So what that suggests to me is that more men are acquiring more wives and less men are engaging in plural marriage, if that makes any sense. And and for me, it does make sense because you have this sort of population problem that I don't think that these men factored in at the beginning, that you run out of women eventually, and uh, you have too many men. Most of the families would contain four wives or less. So an average plural family would have four or less wives. Stanley Ivins did a study for the Western Humanitarian Review called Notes on Mormon Polygamy, and they surveyed the family of 6,000 polygamous families. And it revealed that of those 6,000, two-thirds had just two wives, and 21.2% had three wives, and only 6.7% had four wives. And then only 5.8% of those 6,000 had five wives or more. So this is pretty common In the practice of plural marriage, only a small number of men have a lot of wives, and everyone else kind of has a small amount. Historian Jesse Embry believes that when husbands married extra wives, about half of them moved in with the first family immediately after their marriage. So typically how this would happen if you were just like an average man, not a leader, well, even some leaders did this, they would go off to supplies, they would leave their family for supplies, and... More often than not, they would show up with a new wife, and their their current wife wouldn't know anything about it. And it would be really difficult, and there would be a lot of adjustments. Sometimes the women had a say, but a lot of times they didn't. And so immediately this woman, this new woman, would move into the family. And you can imagine, sometimes a lot of these stories are these girls being 17 or 18, and they move in with this 40-year-old wife who has all these children. And that would be a really interesting Tension-filled sort of dynamic. Um Usually, the new wives would move out as soon as possible, and only a very small fraction of wives continued to share homes. And in fact, a lot of these wives would split up; they wouldn't even live in the same area. Like it's very common. Like Heber C. Kimball did this. His wives were split up all over the territory, and it's just it's just how they did it. So he could go visit certain wives when he was traveling. Craig Foster quoted Kimball Young's study of 110 plural marriages and believed that most of the marriages were consensual. So out of 110 plural marriages, he thinks that most of them were consensual. And I talked earlier about – I someone called me out and said, you know, rape is a strong word for what you described with John D. Lee's situation. Um, and And I would just like to point out that I think when we're talking about consent, if a man is marrying a stepdaughter – or an underage bride, or the bride is sort of traded across from her parents, I consider that rape. So I understand if that's a strong word for some people, but that's a word I I am going to call it. I don't think that there's informed consent there. And so even though we like to say times were different, things were different, imagine being that 16-year-old girl being traded across or being forced to marry your stepfather. I don't think that we can talk say that those things were consensual. So this is what Craig Foster is speaking to. Out of 110 plural marriages, some were consensual, and 53% were successful. So just a little bit over half. 23% had experienced considerable to severe conflict. So 53% were considered successful, and then the rest weren't, and 23% of those were considered severe conflict. And my husband has this great story in their family, I don't know if great is the word, where one plural wife broke the other wife's arm over a land dispute. So this is kind of what we're talking about when we say severe conflict. Paula Kelly Harleen, in her new book, The Polygamous Wives Writing Club, which I'd recommend, um, she, she makes this really astute point. She says that polygamy is better understood as multiple monogamies. I'm gonna say that word again because I think it's so important for you to get in your mind. Polygamy, Mormon polygamy is understood as multiple monogamies. Oftentimes men would leave their wives to go into town for work or supplies and they would come home with these additional wives. There are some accounts of wives being vetted by other wives before this marriage took place, but usually the marriages were built around the man's compatibility and expectations. And they were completely, his expectations and his compatibility with the women were way prioritized over the compatibility with the rest of the family. So, you know, you could bring home a woman and you didn't really often think like, how well is she going to fit in with the family? You you might have thought that, but your main concern was, how well does she fit in with me? How much do I find that she will work for me? Harleen writes, quote, Mormons were trying to integrate polygamy into a culture that was overwhelmingly monogamous in practice and underlying attitude. Thus, in general, wives never felt comfortable with polygamy because, despite their efforts to convince themselves otherwise, there still seemed something adulterous about it. This feeling sometimes temporarily abated the longer they were married, the more their families were preoccupied with settling new land, and as they reviewed their belief that the higher law of polygamy was from God. Second, although sisterhood was and still is a Mormon hallmark, Wives found it hard to treat their husbands, other wives, as sisters, and in their writings chided themselves for the lapse and coached themselves to try harder. If first wife's writing had a formula, it would be, quote, I believed the principle of plural marriage was from God, but it was still hard. It nearly killed me, End quote. And I love that because she's saying that these these wives show that that they felt so much guilt, right? They felt so much guilt for feeling bad about it because it was so hard. They say it nearly killed me. And she was saying that in her study where she takes 29 women, average women that were not married to leaders, this was the formula she found in all of them that it was really hard. I believed it was from God and it nearly killed me. She would also say, quote, first wives who were sometimes still in their twenties when their husbands entered polygamy struggled with the initial news that their husbands planned to marry another wife. After the marriage, most wives struggled to share their husbands' time, attention, and resources because there often was not enough time, attention, and resources to go around. Almost without exception, the wives weren't as interested in building relationships with the other wives as they were in building relationships with their husbands which again was typical of the monogamous culture, end quote. And you can find that in the polygamous Wives' writing club on page four. So what she's saying is these women are way more interested in building relationships with their husband than they are with their sister wives, which is a monogamous relationship, right? If this was a completely integrated plural family, the, the sister wives would really be interested in developing a relationship with everyone because it was they would be an equal footing on, on the family. Um, In 1883, Annie Tanner was a woman whose husband felt that, quote, a long courtship in cases of polygamy was entirely improper. The community would prefer short courtships, short dating periods, short engagements, because they minimize the anxiety over a married man being out with another woman. So this also speaks to Harleen's, uh you know, Point that this is about monogamy. So if a man, a married man, goes out and dates another woman, the community really wanted him to marry her up fast because otherwise, how is the community to know that he's an adulterer or he's a polygamist? It was a really fuzzy line. They didn't know how how to deal with that. Marriages and divorces were also really common in early polygamous Utah, and they were really fast and really easy. Ceilings. Would just take a couple of minutes and usually performed anywhere until this Salt Lake City Endowment House was built. But like you could do it on the spot if you had someone there to marry you. Um, if the prophet was going to marry you, you could do it right there. And it's interesting because we talk a lot about traditional families in Mormonism now, and we talk a lot about like these methods and these um, how important marriages are. And it's interesting, in my, in my opinion, I understand that this practice was new, but I don't think that there was a lot of care afforded to a lot of these relationships to ensure that it was best for the family and best for the children. Oftentimes, it was the man's needs were prioritized or what your priesthood leader said, and that's what you did. In 1852, Utah's divorce laws were said to be the most liberal in the country. And I love that family. Isn't it about time (laughs) in 1852? No, it wasn't. Divorce laws were the most liberal. Apparently, the law was so lenient that loopholes had to be closed through additional legislation in 1878. So it was so lax that they had to make laws to fix it the law gave people flexibility in dealing with converts who had separated from unbelieving spouses and who needed to be quickly integrated into the new mormon society so this was a huge common issue like if if a spouse lost their faith then they were allowed to leave the marriage that was a that was a big uh reason for divorce these laws only affected civil marriages since the LDS church already had control over plural and monogamous ceilings. So you have to remember that law in 1850 Utah wasn't really on par with the U.S. government. The U.S. government was trying to uh, integrate their authority, but it was really difficult. The church would recognize divorces when, when spouses deserted one another, Because of abuse or because of abuse. So here's how divorce typically works. You would move in with your new spouse after having an on-the-spot marriage. And then if things didn't move out or if a trader came in and he was really cute or a minor and you left with him, you were divorced. If a man was, if a woman was dissatisfied with her former husband and sealed to a man of higher authority, that was also considered a reason for divorce. So if you thought your husband wasn't righteous enough and your neighbor down the street was a good righteous priesthood holder with a, maybe a little bit more authority, like he might have been a bishop and your husband just had their ironic priesthood, you could definitely, it would be considered acceptable to leave your husband for this man. Women would have more say in these divorces than men would. And uh, Craig Foster claims that this argues for a more egalitarian stance and that this was actually better for women in this way because women had more freedom to divorce. They could easily get remarried and their choices weren't as limited as some might think. So if you were a woman and you said, you know what, this husband is not treating me well, I'm going to leave him, that was considered more acceptable than if a husband got tired of his wife. I still think that that doesn't take into account the whole systemic pressure and problems and power structures in place, um, especially for women in general in the, in the 19th century. But Craig Foster wants people to be aware that women did have a little bit more flexibility in that case. A total of 72 polygamous LDS church leaders married a total of 391 combined women. And of of those 72 polygamous leaders and the 391 wives, there would be 81 women divorcing them, separate or annul their marriages. So 72 men, 81 divorces. And these are church leaders of higher authority. Even though Mormons were living in isolation, hundreds of miles from other settlements, you know, out there in the, in the West Desert, or sorry, in the Great Basin, their polygamy became more and more known to the outside world. So, they tried to keep it a secret, but they come to Utah, we talked about this, they're letting their guard down, they're feeling, you know, isolated from the world, and they really considered that they were going to start their own country. I mean, Brigham Young had plans. They started the desert alphabet. They were going to have their own language. They developed their own money system. They were really serious about being their own autonomous people. Apostle John Taylor, who would have 15 wives himself, said in July of 1850 in a public discussion in France that, quote, We are accused of polygamy and actions the most indelicate, obscene, and disgusting, such that none but a corrupt and depraved heart could have contrived. These things are too outrageous to admit to belief. I shall content myself, by reading our views of chastity and marriage, from a publish from a work published by us containing some of the articles of our faith, end quote. So we see this is important, July of eighteen fifty, we still see apostles out on missions trying to do this sort of PR campaign to convince people that plural marriage wasn't that the rumors that they're hearing about the Mormons and plural marriage isn't true. There's kind of this double speak in what he's saying. But back in the US Federal officials were getting nervous, and they arrived in the new territorial government in 1851. So they show up in in this Utah territory in 1851, and they want to set up territorial leaders. They want to take back some control. Church leaders, however, had intended to establish a Mormon theocratic kingdom. Now, in Nauvoo, they had what was called the Council of the 50. And if you're paying attention to Mormon studies, the Council of the 50 is important because Joseph Smith literally considered the Council of the 50, their charge was to establish the kingdom of God on earth and to run it. And so they're releasing those minutes now in Mormon studies, and it's been a huge deal because they've been kept secret in the church vaults for so long. And so it's, we've, you know, a lot of us have speculated, what is in those? But the Council of the 50 was already established. They wanted a Mormon theocratic kingdom based on on the designated Council of Fifty, and they wanted it free from U.S. government interference. But it wouldn't work out quite how they had planned. Church historian Van Wagner calls the Council of Fifty, a shadow government that doubled as officials in the territorial hierarchy. Um, John M. Bernheisel, for example, was chosen by the Council of Fifty to try and obtain territorial status in Washington. So what they did what. Brigham Young was really smart. He put council of 50 people and said, "Okay, we we need territorial officials from the U.S. government. Great. I've got some guys right here. And he had his council of the 50 guys double as a territorial government, sometimes as an Indian agent, sometimes as an agent for the government. And they would also be in the council of the 50. So he was able to main control that way. The U.S. government was not stupid. They knew the deck was stacked against them and that the Mormon leaders were doubling as territorial agents. So they tried to wrest power and control back from the Mormons, but they were really unsuccessful. In December 19th, there was a letter in 1851 where four government officials complained to U.S. President Millard Fillmore that the church was, quote, overshadowing and controlling the opinions, the actions, the property, and the lives of its members, usurping and exercising the functions of legislation and the judicial business of the territory. End quote. The, the officials also complain in this letter to the president that the practice of polygamy um, is a problem, and they call it the plurality of wives. And here we begin to see the seeds of a real campaign organized against polygamy in 1851. So, you know, before there was mom persecution, there was rumors, but they were also based around other, you know, struggles. There were rumors that the, that the Mormons were already doing this, but now the government is really starting to get involved, and I'm talking the federal government. The church tries to counter this criticism by sending one of Brigham Young's counselors, Jedediah M. Grant, East to counter the anti-polygamous rumors. Now, Jedediah Grant, I had linked to his journal Discourses sermon that's a little nutty um, on the last episode, so you can look at that. You can read some of his sermons in the journal Discourses. But Brigham Young sends him east to counter these anti-polygamy rumors. And he, Jedediah Grant publishes a letter in the New York Herald denying charges of treason and other alleged Mormon crimes. And he also defends the practice of polygamy without really saying that we're practicing it. The editor of the paper, James J, James G. Bennett, was, had no tolerance for polygamy apologetics. So he writes an editorial in his own paper criticizing the letter from Grant. So it starts this war, this public debate through the, through the press. So Mormon W.W. Phelps tries to fight back and, and continues this debate in the columns of the paper. And Phelps writes, quote, of two evils, a Mormon chooses neither, but goes in for all good and more good, which is as Solomon said, a good wife is a good thing, then the more you have, the more good you have, end quote. So, even though in 52 we have this campaign that actually officially announces the practice to everyone, in 51 we already have the church acknowledging that they are practicing plural marriage. Brigham Young would also openly announce his polygamous practices on February 4th, 1851. He, he addresses the territorial legislature. He says, quote, I have more wives than one. I have many and I am not ashamed to have it known. Jedediah Grant, who was in the East, had written his paper in the New York Herald. Um, and he, in part of it, he had said that Apostle Orson Pratt was soon going to publish this doctrine of polygamy for all to see. If you could just see it, if we could just show you how great it is, then you will understand. And the U.S. representative from Congress, who was appointed to Utah, told Brigham Young that August that, Quote, no such publication had better be made for the public mind is exceedingly sensitive on that subject, not at all prepared to receive it, and its effect would be decidedly injurious. So this this territorial legislator says, Brigham, do not publish your doctrine of plural marriage. It is not going to help you. People will not understand. It is going to harm you. He warns them not to do it. However, church leaders feel differently. B.H. Roberts believed that the church would come out with an official announcement because they, quote, owed it to frankness with the world to make the official proclamation. So B.H. Roberts argues that it's sort of a matter of integrity. And he also claims that not making an official announcement would make things really difficult for Mormon people, most especially the women. He said, quote, for their standing must have become Equivocal had the announcement been much longer delayed, end quote. So Beach Roberts says, like, if they don't announce this, it puts these women who are already the main source of, um, the accusations and, you know, the pressure from the outside world in a really bad place. They're being called whores. They're being called prostitutes. And so he believes that by announcing it officially, it makes, it legitimizes these women. So on August, Twenty 29th, 1852, Orson Pratt, who, remember, 10 years ago, 10 years before that, had become disaffected from the LDS church. He was actually excommunicated because he was said to have gone on a mission, and Joseph, while he was on the mission, Joseph approached his wife and tried to lure her into plural marriage, and she refused, and Orson Pratt came back, heard about it, was super upset. The prophet accused Sarah Pratt of sleeping with John C. Bennett became this ugly thing, and Orson got disaffected and was excommunicated. So now he's back. Orson Pratt is back. He was let back into the church. And now he's, you know, practicing plural marriage himself. So Orson Pratt delivers the principal discourse that W.W. Phelps had promised, defending the practice. Thomas Bullock read the revelation that was supposedly given to Joseph Smith on July 12, 1843, which deals with the eternal nature of marriage and sanctions under the cer- certain circumstances in the plura- plurality of wives and we know what this revelation is because it's now doctrine and covenants 132 and so i'd encourage you to all go read doctrine and covenants 132 after this so they read th- that section it's not doctrine and covenants 132 yet but they have this supposed revelation the minutes of these of this conference including the text of the revelation of July 12 1843 were hastened in print as a desert news extra but they were also put in a pamphlet form for more convenient distribution. Later in the year, Horace S. Eldridge reprinted this pamphlet in St. Louis, and the minutes of the conference were reprinted as a supplement to Volume 15 of the Millennial Star. So across the sea, they were getting this as well. So Orson announces the practice of the plurality of wives to a crowd and republishes it in the Desert News Extra on September 14, 1852. "...called Minutes of Conference, a special conference of the elders of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, assembled in the tabernacle, Great Salt Lake City, August 28, 1852, 10 o'clock a.m., pursuant to public notice." Quote. So in this, he denies that the practices was put in to, quote, "...gratify the carnal lusts and feelings of man." but was to provide righteous men and women an opportunity to have a quote numerous posterity to be raised up and taught in the principles of righteousness and truth, end quote. And Pratt also argues that the biblical practices of polygamy, uh, were sound and that this was a restoration of this Abrahamic lifestyle. And he even went so far as to suggest that Jesus' relationship with Mary, Martha, and Mary Magdalene had, might have been polygamous. So he says even Jesus himself is polygamous. And of course, as we see later on in the Journal of Discourses, this becomes an idea among some of the Mormon leaders that Jesus was a polygamist. Orson Pratt claims that 80% of the world actually believed in polygamy, and that it gave every woman the opportunity to be a wife and a mother. He said that monogamy invited immorality, and there's these great quotes about how you know men have these lusts, and uh, and uh, prophets of old had these lusts, and monogamy was the reason why there was adultery, and monogamy was the problem, which is so interesting now in comparison with how we frame marriage today but Brigham Young too they would say monogamy was an evil Orson argued that polygamy could prevent prostitution and he suggested that it also prevented ancient prophets from visiting prostitutes because instead they had multiple women to go to so he was saying you know Ancient prophets had this, these desires and God's answer to it was giving them more concubines rather than cheating on their wives. He just gave them more wives and he, you know, talked a lot about religious freedom. He would say, quote, but says one, how have you obtained this information by new revelation when it was given? And to whom it was given to our prophet seer and revelator, Joseph Smith on the 12th day of July, 1843, only about 11 months before he was martyred for the testimony of Jesus. Now let me stop right there. So he was saying that this revelation was given in 1843. So that's that's an interesting thing to note because many scholars, Mormon believing scholars, try to point out now that Joseph received the revelation sometime in the 1830s before he had met Fanny Alger because they don't want to insist that Joseph's relationship with Fanny Alger was um adultery. They want to say that it's It was a revelation. So they they say that Joseph somehow knew about it. But Orson is claiming that Joseph received this revelation in 1843. So, you know, 10 years after the fact that he, you know, after he had met Fanny. Not 10 years, several years after. Um. So Orson goes on to say, He held the keys of these matters. He had the right to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord has set bounds and restrictions to these things. He has told us that in Revelation that only one man can hold these keys upon earth at the same time. And they belong to that man who stands at the head to preside over all the affairs of the church and the kingdom of God in the last days. They are the sealing keys of power. Or in other words of Elijah, having been committed and restored to the earth by Elijah, the prophet who held many keys, among which were the keys of sealing, to bind the hearts of fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, together with all the other sealing keys and powers p- pertaining to the last dispensation. They were committed by the angel who administered in the Kirtland Temple and spoken to the prophet, Joseph the prophet, at the time the endowments in that house, end quote. And that was reprinted in the Millennial Star, uh, Volume 15, 15. Uh, Page 26. So in this discourse, Orson Pratt assumes that the keys to perform plural marriages were among the same keys of sealing power which were given to Joseph Smith by Elijah in the Kirtland Temple. A portion of DNC 132 may have been revealed to Joseph as early as 1836 in the Kirtland Temple, um, which is what people argue, saying that that's why his marriage to Fanny Alger was legitimate. Because it was seven years before he was instructed to implement the principle. So you have to decide. There is no documentation of that, at least that I'm aware of. So, um, but we do know that if, if W.W. Phelps was right when he said that Joseph wanted people to marry Lamanites, at least plural marriage was on his mind in 18, as early as 1831. Here are some more quotes, great quotes from Orson Pratt at various times. Quote, he said, Some of the nations of Europe who believe in the one-wife system have actually forbidden a plurality of wives by their laws, and the consequences are that the whole country among them is overrun with the most abominable practices, adulteries, and unlawful connections through all their villages, towns, cities, and countries, places to a most fearful extent. And he would say in the Seer that he would publish as, you know, a matter of like sort of public discourse, quote, this law of monogamy or the monogamic system laid the foundation for prostitution and the evils and diseases of the most revolting nature and character under which modern Christendom groans. And Brigham Young would also give similar instruction. Monogamy was evil. It was it was um, the thing that was cursing men. It was bringing down families. It was bringing down society because of monogamy. So, Orson Pratt would take this, and he would go on to publish a periodical defending polygamy. And this is what we call The Seer. And I would, I would, you know, encourage you all to go look it up. You can read this online, The Seer. It was this periodical, and he heads to Washington, D.C. two weeks after he gives a speech, and he's got The Seer printed out. He intends this magazine um, to be a tool to educate the general public on the views of, this, of the saints and to convince them on how plural marriage was the ancient patriarchal order of things. Unfortunately for Orson, the seer didn't sell. And historian Van Wagner notes something that I think is very sad, that when the European saints who are being converted over in Europe find out about the church's announcement, They become horrified. English, an English missionary noted that the saints, quote, heard nothing of that principle and it brought on a great deal of persecution, end quote. So a lot of these people are giving up their families. They're leaving, you know, their, their Protestant roots or, you know, whatever to come across and their families are like turning on them already. And then it becomes public that the, that the, Mormons are practicing plural marriage, that they think Jesus is a polygamist, that Brigham Young has, I mean, there were rumors that he had like a hundred wives. It's really bringing persecution on their heads. Um, Thomas B. Stenhouse, who happened to be a missionary at the time, um, he would write that during the first six months of the announcement in Europe, 1,776 British saints would leave the church. And there's this terrible story of girls coming up to the missionaries. Little girls would come up with tears in their eyes crying and say, please tell me it isn't true that Brigham has 90 wives. Please tell us that the prophet doesn't have 90 wives. Martha Hayward, who was just a normal woman traveling across the plains, notes in her journal that while traveling west in the 1850 wagon train, that rumors of polygamy were swirling, but she didn't believe them. But now, of course, in Utah, most of the saints would have been aware of the practices and the announcement wouldn't have been that shocking. Because by the time that they had made it to Utah, they had witnessed it in their own wagon trains. And some of them were being asked to to practice it themselves. And of course, all these plural wives are starting to have babies now. So it's becoming public. They wouldn't have seen this. Maybe like the European saints, they would have seen this as an exciting yet cautious fulfillment of the gospel flooding the earth. It would have been this new and exciting way of living. It would have been an exciting time to be alive. And especially as now the prophets are coming and the government's getting interested, that really legitimizes them. Even though it's scary, it legitimizes that this is new and peculiar. And now we're having people going east and we're starting this campaign and people are getting assigned and we're moving to new territories. You can imagine the fervor that you felt. And I think that this fervor gets translated into fanaticism, which we're going to talk about later. But what I would encourage you to do is go listen to this episode a few more times. It has a lot of information, but the information is really important for context. Go read more about Orson Pratt's sermon. Go read about the U.S. territorial legislature coming in, trying to wrest control. Go read about the SEER. And maybe, you know, I I can't encourage people enough to go pick up both uh, editions of the Persistence of Polygamy that has essays in it about these things. They're great. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I know it had a lot of information, but it's super, super important information to kind of set up the Utah period and I appreciate everyone listening. Again, if you want to donate, that would be much appreciated to help this project continue. Um, you can find the button on the site at org. And I appreciate everybody tuning in today.